Our Old Testament reading and sermon passage from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord says to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Our New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. For those of you who are visiting, uh, first-time visitors, an extra warm welcome to you. We're in a summer series. We're looking at the Psalms. Uh, last week, we started with Psalm number one, and that was what we call a wisdom psalm. And there, the psalmist talked about the two paths. There's a path of destruction, and there's also a path of, a path of blessing. And we are to pursue that path of blessing through Christ by being in his word. Today we have a kingship psalm, and uh, the psalm is, you know, speaking about, well, is it David the king or is it a messianic king? And commentators say it's, it's a both and. Uh, the first intent is David, but then also it expands to the Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we should not be surprised by that. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, there Jesus himself says, all scripture, all scripture speaks of him, Christ. And we even saw that last week when we saw in Psalm 1 that the perfect man of Psalm 1 is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be careful. That doesn't mean that every psalm is messianic in the sense that it has a clear, intentional portrayal of the Messiah. But yet, here in Psalm 2, we do. Um, Jesus is so clearly the mighty king. He is the ruler over all. And all is to be in submission to him. Today, we'll see that there's four parts to the psalm. There's four different speakers. And we're going to use this as four points to the sermon. And so verses 1 through 3, there's a narrator. And he talks about the rage of the nations against God's king. And then in verses four through six, the next speaker is God the Father. And he laughs from heaven regarding the feeble attempts of the people to thwart his kingdom. 
And then in verses 7 through 9, we see God the Son, and he speaks of the certainty of the rule that he has as God's king. And then in verses 10 through 12, we go back to the narrator, and he warns the people. He says, you are to fear the king, you are to have faith in the king, you are to kiss the king. And so today what we want to see is this, uh, because Jesus is king, we are to take refuge in him. So we're going to, if you will, riff on that last phrase of the psalm. Jesus is this king. And as we sung already Psalm 2, there's like this heaviness, not just because we sang Psalm 2 in a minor chord, but... We hear this, that he is mighty, that he is powerful. And we are to take refuge in him. So before we go further, let's pray before we begin. God, we, we need to see Jesus. And we want to see Jesus. And that he is the king, and he is the king in whom we take refuge. Make my words to be your words. Open the ears of those who now listen. Give us understanding hearts. And God, would you give us faith to find refuge in Jesus the King. We pray in his name. Amen. So first we see the rage of the nations. Look at verse 1. It says, the nations, the people of the world, they rage or noisily assemble, and they vainly plot a coup. Verse 2, they set themselves against God and his anointed King. Then look at verse 3. They seek to burst their bonds and cast away the cords of the king's rule. Now, it's interesting. Um, it's not stated the reason why they want to do this, but what's very clear is this. They don't want God to be their king. They don't want God's king to rule over them. And so this is more than just a rejection of a godly ruler who stands you know, for God's law. Look at verse 2 at the very end. They are rebelling against the Lord God himself. One commentator says it this way, in these three verses is a description of the hatred of human nature against Christ, the Messiah King of God. Since the fall, going back to the very beginning, not autumn, but the fall into sin, uh, human history is one of rebellion against God. Human history is one of rejection of God and his kingship. Think about the Garden of Eden. They're our first parents. They were given one negative command, one negative command, do not eat of this tree. And that one negative command establishes that God is the king. He is the rule giver and that we are the subjects. What did our first parents do? They disobeyed. And in the heart of rebellion, they wanted to be like God, but there's even more. They wanted to be apart from God, their creator, and they even wanted to be over God, who is the Lord of all. Now, we might be saying, okay, well, that was back then. How about now? Even now, there are nations that oppress Christianity. In what we call missiology or the missions movement, there's this thing called the 1040 window. And it's basically northern Africa all the way over, you know, following that latitude to Asia. And it's basically, if you throw China into there, it's more than three quarters of our population of the world. And in that 1040 window, what we find is there's not just hostility, but sometimes violence against those who call on the name of Jesus. If you were to name the name of Jesus, you can expect rage, persecution. Now, you might be saying, okay, that's there, but how about here in the United States? 
How about here in Delafield, Wisconsin? Um, not outright, but we can say that there is a growing animosity toward what we can call biblical Christianity. You know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, we had this movement, you know, all religions must be the same. And uh, Christianity is a little bit too exclusive, and so we need to be tolerant toward one another. And so uh, what we see today is that equality has gone even further, and it's this, uh, all lifestyles must be treated equally. Christianity is, it's okay as long as you affirm cultural values that are present today, particularly things like sexual identities. In days of old, if you spoke out against, say, you know, sex outside of marriage, you might be called prudish, um, you might be called old-fashioned, but at the very minimum, what would happen is people would just ignore you and do what they want to do. Today, if we speak out against the LGBTQ plus movement agenda, you are labeled a hater. And you experience what's called cancel culture. And what's interesting, this is not just people who might say they're atheists. This is coming from Christians who would call themselves, say, progressive. These are those who would say, no, that is not what Christianity is. And so what we have to think and think through carefully here is when people talk this way, it's not actually an attack upon Christianity. Listen, it's an attack upon Jesus Christ himself. Who is the one who defines marriage? The Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus defines marriage as between a man and a woman, who are we to then rewrite? And so when we actually redefine something as marriage, it's not just we're attacking Christianity, we're attacking the one who defines what marriage is. This is very important because what we see is the rage of the nations is also the rage of even people today here. And it's rage against Jesus as the king that he has all authority, that Jesus is the one who has what we call autonomy. That means we are not the moral standard. We are not the ultimate power. We are not the ultimate king. So Psalm 2, people hate God because he is the king who stands in the way of self. He is the, way, the one who stands in the way of loving ourselves more than others. He is the one who stands in the way of self-supremacy. And so here, this rage of the nations is real. What then is the next? We see laughter from heaven. What does God say to such scoffers? To those who reject him and his anointed, look at verse 4, he laughs. Now, this is the only place recorded where God laughs, and it's not pleasant. Um, it's even further, he says, there's derision. It's a word for mocking and ridicule, and we say, that's not very coming of God. Isn't he a bit more mature than that? And what we see, though, is this, it's the absurdity. How absurd it is to fight against God, who is the creator. He is the judge of all. And note from where he is laughing, he's sitting on his throne, the nations are raging, and yet God is not pacing. He's not worrying. He's not wringing his hands. God is not reactionary. He is sovereign, and he remains in control at all times. 
Look at verses 5 and 6. After the laughter, God speaks, and what does he say? I have set my king on Zion. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century, late 1800s, uh, Baptist preacher in London, he says this, is that not a grand exclamation? God has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. While they are proposing, he has disposed the matter. Jehovah's will is done, and man's will frets and raves in vain. God's appointed, or God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. Who knew that Spurgeon could rhyme like that? <laughs> Uh, in our own Presbyterian tradition, there's a guy named William Plummer. Uh, he was uh, early to mid-1800s, and he wrote a very long commentary on the Psalms, uh, over 1,100 pages. And in his discourse on Psalm 2, he takes time to point out there are 30 Roman emperors, uh, not emperors, but emperors, governors, and high officials who all worked against Christianity. And he takes time to detail them, and he says, they raised their hands toward God, and yet they all died in a horrible way. And his point is this, God always has the final word. God laughs because nothing stands in the way of his king. His rule is never thwarted. Let's look at the next speaker, the certainty of the king. In verses 7 through 9, we see a new speaker, and he's identified as the son of the Lord, the son of Yahweh. And what we see is he is the king. He is the Messiah. And ultimately, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it might have immediate application to David the king, but it has ultimate application to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Here is uh, the king, and he speaks in verse 7. What does he say? He says, hear what God the Father says about me. If the Father's laughter does not warn you, listen to his decree about my reign. Verse 7, you are my son. This is a declaration of the Father's authority upon the Son. And what he's saying is the Son's rule is not rebellion. It's not something that's illegitimate. What's going on here is a transfer of power from the Father to the Son. Now, the New Testament picks up on this in two places. The first place is the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, uh, the Holy Spirit descends down, but then God the Father speaks and he says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Here in that baptism... It's the beginning, the start, if you will, of Jesus' earthly ministry. And what God is saying is, Jesus has the Father's approval. Jesus has the Father's power. Jesus has the Father's authority. He is the legitimate king. The second place we see this in the New Testament is the transfiguration. This is where Jesus and the disciples, or some of the disciples, go up on a mountaintop, and Jesus reveals his heavenly glory to them. He is shining brighter than the sun before them, and they're undone. And again, the voice of the Father speaks and says, this is my son. Listen to him. 
This is a transition point because Jesus is preparing to go to the cross and he's beginning to end, if you will, his earthly ministry. And again, the Father speaks and gives to the Son approval, power, and authority. As we need to see the picture of what's going on here in Psalm 2. What's going on is the, psalm, the Son of the Lord is the undisputed king. How could you ever have indifference toward him? How could you ever rebel against him? How could you ever say, meh, he's just a king. He is the king of kings. Continuing on, look at verse 7 as it ends. Today I've begotten you. This full phrase in verse 7, um, this is my son whom I've begotten, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Uh, one is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, so right away in the big book of Hebrews, and it's showing that Jesus as the Son is greater than the angels. And then later in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus as the Son is greater than this kind of interesting character in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, who is both a priest and a king. And Jesus, he's saying, is greater than even the king, the greatest of all earthly kings, this Melchizedek. The third place where it's quoted is in Acts chapter 13. Here is the Apostle Paul, and he's on his first missionary journey. And as he's preaching, he quotes Psalm 2. And he quotes Psalm 2 to demonstrate that Jesus, he is the true Son of God, and that he is divine. That Jesus is more than a man, that he is God himself. Now, why did the Son of God, Jesus, become a man? He became a man to die on the cross, to be resurrected from the dead, and to raise us to new life. What we see also as this is through Jesus' resurrection, his reign as the Son of God is established forever and ever. You see, why is this important? The resurrection is proof to the scoffer that Jesus' reign is valid, that it's legitimate. Uh, here is the Father, and the Father is decreeing that Jesus is the legitimate king. And then the resurrection validates that decree. So again, we see this picture. There's no scoffing. There's no indifference. Jesus is the king. Look at verse 8. The Father gives Jesus all the nations to rule, to have power over them, to conquer them. Look at verse 9. Jesus is to rule with this rod of iron, and he breaks the rebellious nations. They are shards of pottery. Uh, the author, uh, the Apostle John in Revelation, in his vision, he sees this Psalm 2 lived out in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, there's this picture of Jesus, and the picture is Jesus comes and he has a sword in his mouth. <laughs> and it's a sharp sword, it says, to strike the nations, and he rules with this rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's a very uncomfortable picture of Jesus. <laughs> Often when we go into like a person's home, say if like if you grew up Lutheran or Catholic and there's like a picture of Jesus, and the picture of Jesus often is like he's sorrowful, he's looking up. Uh, too often the picture of Jesus, he's white, he has blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, and it's kind of like this wimpy picture of Jesus. Um, it's amazing. 
Here in Psalm 2, though, it's a complete opposite picture. Jesus is all powerful. He's angry about rebellion. He's ready to defend his fame and his glory. Who makes you afraid? Who makes your knees knock? Uh, who makes you feel like your life is very threatened? When I was much younger, um, I'm going to share a shameful story of your pastor. Um, on New Year's Eve, when I was young, I was, I was like a freshman in high school, and I was out snowmobiling, and I laughed at a drunk snowmobiler who was stuck in the ditch. And um, I didn't help him. I just laughed and rode away. And as I was riding away, I was struck from behind, and I was knocked off my vehicle. And I look up to see what's going on, and there is a big dude looming over me. It was the guy that I laughed at. <laughs> and he was just getting ready to crush me, literally. I thought I was going to die. And then the group of friends all pulled him off and said, don't kill him today. <laughs> That's fear. <laughs> my knees were knocking, and I really thought that I was going to be not if dead, seriously going to need like dental work or something. Does Jesus command such fear in your life? Does he make your knees knock? Do you understand, do you feel, do you experience that this Jesus is the awesome king and he rules with a rod of iron? Do you believe that in a moment Jesus could crush you if he wanted to? He is not wimpy Jesus. He is King Jesus. And what Psalm 2 is saying is he can crush and he will crush if you will not bow before him as the King of Kings. And that leads us to our fourth point, the warning to all people. Look at verses 10 through 12. Here the narrator returns and he gives a warning and then he gives an instruction and then he gives another warning and then he gives a blessing. Let's work through this. Verse 10. Be warned, you rebellious. You cannot stand against the God's king. Verse 11. Instruction. Serve the king with fear. And this fear is respect. It's reverence. It's adoration. And then rejoice with trembling. Further instruction. Verse 12. Kiss the son. That's a sign. It's an action of saying, Jesus, you are the king, and I give my allegiance to you. My kiss is one of submission. Basically, it's saying, Jesus, you are my king. Then in the middle of verse 12, there's a warning. If you do not give allegiance to this son of the Lord, the king, you will perish in his wrath. And then look how it ends. It ends with a blessing. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, what does this mean? Very simply, Jesus, as the Son of God, the King of kings, he demands all obedience. Now, we should not be surprised by that. Jesus, in John chapter 14, he says, you know what? If you love me, you keep my commands. That's one of the ways in which we primarily show that Jesus is really our king. We obey him. We follow him. I think that's a big challenge to us in our sense of freedom. We can be people who say, you know what, Jesus, yes, you are my king. You are the son of God. I understand that you are the savior. But I'm going to pick and choose what I want to do. I'm going to pick and choose which commandments to follow. I'm going to pick and choose what theology 
I want to follow. That's very dangerous. Because when you do what you want to do and not what Jesus wants, you show that you are then the king and not Christ. If you want to know that Jesus is the king in your heart, you obey him even when it's difficult. You obey him when it's not popular. You obey him when it's against the culture. Now, why would you kiss the son in this way? Why would you give allegiance to Jesus only? Why would you obey him in all things, even when it's difficult? Someone might say, well, Psalm 2, it's fear. Um, I'm going to obey him, otherwise he'll crush me. For some of us, we came to Christ in this sense. Perhaps you came to Christ because you were preached to it in a youth group and it was like, believe or go to hell. And it's actually true. But your belief is more like, if I will, hell insurance. <laughs> um, you don't want to go to hell, so you're believing. And so your belief, though, is more, I don't want to go to hell rather than I want to follow Jesus as my king. Psalm 2 is not saying hell insurance. Psalm 2 is saying he is the king. He is the king. And such hell insurance is not actually godly fear. Godly fear, again, is reverence. It's adoration. It's kissing the king because you have a heart to kiss the king. So then we ask them, well, what would bring about such a heart that you want to kiss the king? And it's the grace of God. See, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Lord. And why did he come? Jesus came to take the curse so that we might be blessed. On the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there the disciple who would betray him, Judas Iscariot, greets him with a sign, and that sign, if you remember, was a kiss. He gave him a kiss, but it was not a kiss from the heart. It was not a kiss of adoration. It was a kiss of betrayal, and that kiss of betrayal displays what was going to happen on the cross. For on the cross, God the Father turns against Jesus because he bears all our sin. All the wrath that is due to us is put upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he bears the full penalty of our sin. Our sin deserves to be fully crushed. And Jesus is the king who is crushed in our place. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is what changes our hearts so that we would say, Jesus, I will follow you. I will obey you. So in verse 12, we have a warning. If you do not kiss the son, he will be angry. He'll destroy you in his wrath. But in verse 12 is an invitation. Take refuge in the son. Take refuge in him. For in him there is full forgiveness of sins. In him there is acceptance before God the Father. In him there is perfect love. In him there is freedom to be who God has made you to be. Not tomorrow, but last Monday was Memorial Day. And Memorial Day, we remember those who, if you will, gave the ultimate sacrifice, their life, so that we could have freedom in our country. I think it's very fair to say that a chief American value is freedom. And yet, I would put before you that a chief hindrance to Christianity is freedom. 
Meaning, we are those who would say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I still want to do what I want to do. I want to be free to be what I think I ought to be. And yet we have to ask questions that are hard. How does freedom for sexual sin, how does freedom for greed, how does freedom for indulgence, how does freedom for anger bring life? Those things don't bring life. Those things are actually a burden. They weigh us down. It's like slavery instead of freedom. And so faith and following Jesus, it's a path of life. It's a path of true freedom. So here is Psalm 2. Not quite the first psalm, but it's at the beginning of the Psalter. And it's put there to say, will you obey the King of God? Will you submit to him? Will you follow his rule? And so today, if you are here and you're not yet a follower of Christ, we welcome you here. We want Cornerstone to be a place where you can say, I belong to this church, even though I may not believe yet that this is a place that receives me and is helping me to know Jesus. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, we welcome you. And yet today, would you believe? Would you come to Jesus and find refuge in him? Today, if you are sitting on the fence and you're saying, should I believe, may this psalm push you to see that Jesus is the one in whom to find refuge. Today, if you're here and you're wrestling with unrepented sin, today would you repent and come to freedom that is found in Christ? Today, if you're wrestling through hard issues, there are hard things going on in the church today. We have to think through and talk through hard things such as progressive Christianity. If we don't talk about it, someone else is talking about it. And so we need to be able to talk about what does the Bible say about things such as the LGBTQ plus agendas. It's not being something that we have to politicize, but it has to be something that we have to say, God, what do you say? And so today, are we willing to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow what you say, even if it's not popular? Today, if you are following the Lord Jesus, Rejoice and say, God, would you increase in me, increase in me a greater joy and confidence in finding refuge in you. Jesus is the king. Let us find refuge in him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, blessed are those who take refuge in you. Thank you for securing our salvation through the cross. Would you prepare now our hearts as we prepare to take this supper? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.